change is always a good thing. I think at different points in our lives, we sometimes need to stop, just stop and just listen, just listen to what's going on around us. Um, we can get very driven by what we feel we have to do, you know, to just keep moving forwards. You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. So in this season, I will talk to incredible people who've experienced huge, pivotal moments of real change by choice or by circumstance. From stories of reinvention and inspiring career pivots to the dramatic shifts that happen in moments of crisis, I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. My guest today is Cassius Rayner, filmmaker, writer and lecturer, working in film and video since the early 90s. Cassius has won many international film awards and accolades during his career to date, and most recently for Best Short Film for Deadeye at the Stockholm Film Festival. His short COVID film, London Falls Silent, was voted Mobile Film of the Year 2020. Cassius has dedicated many years to supporting, training and mentoring disadvantaged and marginalised young people across the UK on smartphone technology, enabling them to learn not only filmmaking, but also personal development skills. The genesis of this work was an extreme, terrifying and life-changing experience that Cassius tells me about in our conversation. Cassius, wonderful to have you with me today. Thank you for joining me. Um, some years ago, you had a life-changing experience when you were stabbed by two young people in South London. Could you take me to that point and what you remember and, and what passed through your mind at that time? I don't think at the point when it was happening, anything was particularly passing my mind apart from surviving. I think your mind and your body just goes into auto drive to survive the situation. I knew it was very serious. Um, I guess there was one moment where I was not sure that I was going to actually get to the hospital in time. I was losing a huge amount of blood on the pavement. Because they hit an artery, is that correct? Yeah, they were, and they'd also stabbed me twice. And yeah, the first stab had gone straight through. And so, yeah, I was bleeding pretty drastically from my main artery. And it was actually ironically in the movie world you kind of think well it only happens in the movie world but it was actually a wonderful off-duty nurse who who I I feel even to this day saved my life she was in a, a house opposite and heard what was happening she came running out and she had tea towels with her and she tied my legs up and got me into a recovery position and even put her hand inside my wound to try and hold the artery to stop it from bleeding. So I think at that point I thought, okay, I've got a chance. <laughs> I've got a chance to surviving here. Talking about it now, I still can visually remember a lot in the moment as to how it happened. And yeah, the sounds, the nurse talking to me, you know, I remember all that. What is the predominant, this is a very unfair question, forgive me, but you know, us going back to that moment, as you say, is, is, you know, evoking that experience in some respects. What What is the predominant sense that you have, whether it's visual or whether it's a sound from that time? 
Um, yeah, that's a very good question, very deep question. <laughs> I remember at the time in my mind thinking, this isn't happening, this is ha isn't happening, it's, you know, I'm going to get through this. It's, it's strange, it, it's a mix of all sorts of things. And like I said, there is an aspect of complete survival that you have to survive this. Yeah, and I, I, maybe it was because I was young at that time when it How happened. How old were you, Cassius? Remind me. Thirty. At the time that it happened, I mean, it's young for me now, but it's all a state of mind. <laughs> trust me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of also just part of you, I think, part of the process is you just can't actually believe that this is the way you're going to go. So you're. Just survivor mode. The sounds I would always say. I mean, the most the most distinctive sound was her voice talking to me, which kept me calm. Actually, it's a weird feeling, but it feels like you're cradling into your mother. She was, you know, the source of of safety. I guess at that time, right? The source of rescue. Yeah, and I felt at the time if I was going to pass, then then I felt comforted at that point. Well, that's a beautiful thing. And subsequently, obviously, you, you were rushed to hospital. Over the coming weeks and months, you underwent a process of recovery, I guess, at multiple levels. It wasn't just the physicality, it was just the shock of every aspect of what had happened to you. Over those weeks and months of recovery, how did you feel? And how did you feel about life? I think the first emotion that I was conscious of or, or I remember in hospital was anger. I just felt incredibly angry and violated. And why would another human being have that right to do that to me? You know, a stranger who just changes your life in an instant, you know, over some crazy selfish moment or act where they felt that that's what they had to do. Yeah, it, incredible anger. And I guess the longer I was in hospital, I had to have fairly major surgery. And in recovery, I tried to work through that anger. And How did you do that? I just came to that conclusion in my own mind that I thought this is consuming me. And, you know, and I was young, you know, at 30, and I thought I've still got the rest of my life. And come on, Cass, you've got to sort yourself out. Let's move forward from this. And because... I knew that that anger was consuming me and I was becoming incredibly bitter. The fact that I couldn't walk, walk for a long time was just adding to that problem of feeling really angry towards these people that felt that they could just go and do this to someone. But then in time, you know, I began to, I think the one word that came into mind was why. And I had a desperate need to know why, why. Did this have to happen? Why did they feel that they had to do this? Did that trauma, I mean, standing back from it quite some years now, did that trauma, when you look back, put you in a new direction as you wanted to explore why, wanted to understand and discover the motivations, the behaviour, the root cause of this, you know, awful atrocity from perhaps a more humane, compassionate level, thinking about the lives of those young people? Yeah, I mean, at the time, that certainly wasn't on my mind. <laughs> I was still working my way through it. It certainly wasn't a conscious decision 
that I'm aware of at that time. Um, I think it was the fact that I'd, I was already obviously working as a camera operator, but due to the injuries, I lost all my work and I couldn't physically do the job because, it, you know, camera operating is quite physical. And it took, um, I was on crutches for a very long time and I had to do physio to relearn how to walk basically it was literally like having baby legs and just learning how to tell my legs to move forward again how did you cope with that emotionally because obviously you know it didn't just affect you physically or emotionally or psychologically it was it was your work it was your livelihood yeah um i mean that i was all consumed as i said at the time with the anger and i guess all all of that amalgamated into it but in a way i think being a filmmaker or or my nature or my instincts is to always ask questions and that began to evolve in my mind as to but why you know the craziness of this why why do this to another human being i have to know why and i think after having conversations with the police because i wasn't mugged which initially i thought which was what was going on but they didn't actually rob me or take anything and they the police said it was a gang initiation so we're talking like two, they couldn't have been more than 16, 17 years old. Remind me, were they caught? No, no. And sadly, I'm not sure the outcome for those two young guys would have been a particularly positive one down the line. Um, but the police said that it, there would have been an adult controlling them. And in order to get into a gang, you have to use a weapon and take out a stranger. So you use it, you stand your ground, and then you're initiated into the gang. So that's part of the whole culture of gang initiations. Um, so my mind then began to work with that as a filmmaker. And I thought, not only was, you know, I don't like using the word victim, but but in this instance, you know, being the victim of, of that particular crime, I then started to wonder, that they were victims as well of a very different world than I needed to understand. And even though I was only 30 at the time, I was busy doing my work and my, you know, freelancing as a camera operator and life is moving forward with all the normal pressures of adulthood. And I hadn't really, you know, I felt quite disconnected from youth or the next generation of youth behind me. And um, I guess as a filmmaker, that also became part of my mental process was, well, I need to know. I need to know what's going on with our youth in this country and, you know, why, why these situations are happening. Um, what can we do to improve it? What can we do to make things better in society? And so I became quite obsessed with studying gangs and gang initiations I began to learn the patterns of different gangs that were operating in different parts of London. What were the main things that you learned in hindsight about gangs and um, these sorts of behaviours within these sorts of communities? And I actually learned a lot more when I then progressed and started to actually change my own route in working with disadvantaged and marginalised young people down the line. But I think instantly what I was finding was that most of the people in gangs don't actually know what they're doing. They generally are just told what to do and they do it because that's what you're supposed to do. 
there's no background. I remember having a discussion with two former gang members and um, who were also trying to change their lives for the better. And they were part of a, a notorious, I'm not going to mention who they are, but they were a notorious gang with a reputation down the line from a family background of generations of, of gang members. And it had got to the point where they had what they call beef with another gang from the neighborhood that had gone on for three decades. Uh, the conflicts over who controlled what in the area. But it also got to the point where they don't actually know what the original conflict was because it's gone down generations. So I'm talking to two 18 year olds and they don't actually know what the history is. And they don't, they, they just said, well, you know, we've been told there's always been beef with this other gang. So that's what it is. And we're with this gang. So you kind of, you know, make sure that you <laughs> do what you have to do with this other, you know, towards this other gang. To stay safe, right? And also they probably, partly, you know, out of self-protection, I'm sure, in many instances, but also because they probably feel they haven't got any other choices. Yeah, and 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 it's about the space that they're growing up in. There's not a lot of places they can run to. And unfortunately, if it's in their neighbourhood, it's in their neighbourhoods. I mean, it's in their face. So if they're lucky, they can keep away from it. But in most cases, they're going to be drawn in at some point to what's going on. But they just they just don't know what it is. They, you know, it was extraordinary that we had three decades of these family gang feuds that were going on in this neighborhood. But so no one seems to actually recall how or why it started. <laughs> right. And I think it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. And we've seen it historically in many cultures and countries with where there's terrorism or war on a widespread basis. Um, Cassius, you made a film, Cut and Run, some years ago. Tell me about that. Did that really evolve out of, one, your experience, and two, this quest that you went on to uncover and discover what was really going on with these young people? But tell me about that film and the genesis for it. It's a bit of a strange one, actually, doing Cut and Run, because... People make an assumption it was because of my own life experiences. To a degree it was, but also I actually made the film before I was stabbed. Gosh, there's a sign. <laughs> yeah, there's the irony. The irony, oh my um, gosh, totally. Yeah, and it, it was only about four or five months after the film was made that I was then stabbed, so that was the craziness of it. But the main reason I made that film at that time is that Let's just say I come from a fairly colourful background and um, unfortunately I grew up around crime myself. I wasn't engaged with crime. I made some very tough choices when I was young. But I was very conscious of that world. Uh, I kind of knew an awful lot that went on in that world around drug addiction and uh, crime that's related to that. And when I moved to South London, I was, in South East London, I was just noticing a lot of this behavior on the streets i kind of wanted to know or understand it better i wanted to tell a story that represented a lot of hardships for people in south london in particular southeast london and so this the, the film just came around about a kid trying to not get involved in that world and there was a scene where um an individual is stabbed but Interestingly, when it was first screened at the festival, the audience were in complete shock and would seem to be quite angry at the Q&A. 
And I said, but at no point visually do you actually see the stabbing itself. It's all suggestive. It's about the impact because, and I said, but that to me is good storytelling because you feel that you've actually seen the process itself and you haven't. It's been suggested to you. So to me, that was the strength of the story is that it really got that point across that uh, how horrible, how wrong that is, that violation. And uh, the Q&A, the, the audience was saying, this is not real, this is very unrealistic, this is not what happens in our neighbourhoods. People were just not prepared to accept that there were a lot of things going on on the streets around them, whether they're aware of it or not. But they just weren't, the audience weren't ready for that film. And um, the film got banned. So, <laughs> Do you think people would be ready for it now? Well, I mean, my argument at the time was, well, we're all prepared to sit and watch Quentin Tarantino going crazy with Bloodfields, crazy violent films. And, and I thought, OK, but what I'm doing is just telling you a social impact story that, that deals with certain issues that are real and they do happen in the streets of London. And 20 years ago, no, it appears to me that people were not prepared for this. And I guess, you know, the idea of, the news covering stabbings was still very, very early days. I mean, it was, you know, stabbings has ha always been happening. There's always been gangs. It's always we just haven't gangs. talked about it, right? And right. I think to your, to your point, you know, today we talk about many things that certainly we didn't talk about 20 years ago. You know, even some of the big narratives in society today about inclusion and around mental health and all these different things. There's a whole language that wasn't actually employed. It's also social media, you know, didn't exist. So people weren't saturated with that content. And, you know, what I covered, if people watched the film now, they'd be, well, that's really soft. You know, that's not edgy or hard. But at the time, it was a bit of a shock factor for people. Did you see the irony having made that film, you know, and some subsequently gone through the dreadful trauma that you went through what did that make you think about you know further down the track when you were able to you know rationalize and, and sort of philosophize about it all it was a combination of things I mean prior to that situation I had already been overseas as a camera operator working for UNOPS part of the United Nations so I'd already seen and experienced quite a lot and I just part of me was just thinking it's just so ironic that I come back to my hometown and then two kids stabbed me and completely changed the course of my life. Did I think it was going to be for the better at that time? No, I was petrified. I thought I'd lost everything. I thought my career was gone. The phone stopped ringing. You know, people, well, don't call Cass because he's got serious leg injuries. He's not, you know, he's not available. And so I felt I'd had to start from scratch. I'd already lost quite a few years of what I was already doing that had just gone. And I felt that I was having to start fresh. But in hindsight, looking back, I think I made the right choices and I made the right decisions in, in what I felt I needed to pursue, which was to use what my skills and my knowledge, you know, what my skills and knowledge are to try and help others. So um, one of my former guests, um, an incredible woman called Emma Slade, who's actually a Buddhist nun, says that sometimes, you know, a crisis is what we need. And in your case, a terrible trauma and a major crisis, not through any fault or, you know, intention of your own, helped you re-pivot yourself over time. So subsequently, you pivoted your career. You also became very engaged in 
working in local communities, both locally and across the country, um, supporting, training, mentoring, disadvantaged young people and marginalised young people. Tell me about your work here. Yeah, the link obviously is because of what happened to me, which then changed my path. I couldn't get back into film work as quickly as I wanted to. And so I felt, how can I use my skill base to better things or or to make any kind of difference? Because I felt quite useless and quite redundant at that point. I didn't have much going on. How did you cope with that, those feelings to get yourself onto the next road? I'm not sure that I did cope with them too well. My wife would now say, you know, you were very bad at that point. You were in a very, very dark place and you were clearly very lost and confused as to what to do next or what the next course was. But I think, and it wasn't anything planned, but just the fact that I needed to know I became obsessed with gangs, maybe too obsessed with it and needed to pull back a little bit from that. But it was during Why the- too obsessed, sorry, if I may ask? What did that mean to you, being too obsessed? Um, seeing too much. There were gangs were putting out a lot of YouTube video content and there was a lot of um there was a lot of ways that they used to be able to pass me so they used music to pass messages to each other about where they were gonna fight, where it was gonna go down and all the rest of it. So I kind of then ended up knowing the signals, knowing what things to check, what things to look through. And yeah, it consumed me a little bit too much and I, and it wasn't healthy. Um, and I needed to pull away from that. But it was actually an artist friend of mine because I didn't know what to do. I knew I wanted to do something. I felt I had to do something that would lean on my skills, but to do something that had a bit more of a social impact or could make a difference. So it was actually an artist friend of mine who mentioned this agency and they said, look, they're desperate for a filmmaker to come in and they're a difficult group of kids, but they really need some engagement. Could you just try, you know, just could you come in for a couple of weeks to this particular school and see if you could, you know, do anything with this group? And I haven't looked back actually since then. I I mean, the idea of teaching, I just wanted to be a camera operator and director. That's That was my thing. The idea of teaching was just not, you know, it just never existed in my mind. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure you've learned so much from these young people as well. But in that journey of, you know, which started then of, you know, running projects and mentoring and teaching and everything in between, what have been the biggest challenges for you? There's lots of really good positive challenges that I've kind of, that's how I tackle it. But there are some challenges where you know you're going to hit a dead end and it's not going to move forward. What I found is that it just opened my eyes to so many different issues in society that we would that were not being dealt with or tackled. And I just found I, I never thought of myself as a teacher. I always felt myself as just a professional that would just hang out share you know with some young people and see where it would take us what journey would we go on together and of course camera is powerful you know and teaching the young people those fundamentals the stories that they could come out with their imagination their creativity was you know they were coming from nothing and it was quite exciting and encouraging for me and I thought wow I really 
want to be a part of this. I really want to help and, and be a part of this. And clearly what I do is really, really helpful to certain groups in society. So the challenge is, I would say, that interestingly it opened my eyes up to other areas of the film industry that I felt was an issue and is still an ongoing issue. There are racism. I think there are still elements of that in the industry. It's not an equal playing field. I think if you come from certain backgrounds, you've got much more of a fight, an incredibly hard fight to even break in and get get into the industry or, or work your way up. And also, I think it wasn't reaching certain groups of society. It wasn't reaching young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. If they really worked hard, they could potentially get a job in the creative industries. And I felt that, that I needed to be that bridge it was my job to bridge that gap and connect them and say, okay, train with me. I'm going to support you. I'm going to mentor you. And we're going to find ways that we can get you in, or we're going to find ways that you can get apprenticeships or a training position or something that will get you connected to it. And I think it was during that time, which was incredibly successful, actually. We, I had huge success, not and not my success, but actually the young people's determination to better themselves and to do something that they found really interesting and were excited by that they really, really, really worked hard, much harder than, than would be expected from someone who'd gone to film school. So they were able to change themselves and their own situations, right? Through being given Absolutely. this opportunity. And what have you learned about yourself in that process? That I'm never going to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever say never. Okay. Just, just, just saying. <laughs> I think it's made me a much better person. I don't have any regret about what happened to me. I've got beyond that point now, and I've realized that it's helped me better myself as a person. It's helped me to appreciate others immensely. And it's also woken me up to the fact that, you know, there's not enough people, that there are incredible people out there trying to work really hard with different charities and community groups to really help young people but there's still a huge fight on to make those things better and I will die happy hopefully as a very old man but I will die happy knowing that I did all that I could because I think that's important for me personally that I know that I tried and if I've made a difference to 10 people or 100 people would you know amazing but it, to, to make a change and to share with others it's made me a better person. And do you, in the time that you've been doing this, which is quite some years now, and you've been recognised for it and you've done incredible things, how far have things improved from a societal perspective? Because some of the things we're talking about here, such as the discrimination, the racism, the um, bias, depending on you know where you grew up and what your family looks like and all that stuff, has the dial shifted much in your view? It has shifted, but in very different ways. I think social media has certainly changed in some ways it's been positive in, in there are again many issues and negativity attached to social media and content and the bad side of it but on the good side of it it's allowed young people from certain marginalized areas to connect to research to find out what it is they could do or could try or or explore um information is much more readily available now to these young people. I mean, when I 
started working with young people, social media still kind of didn't really exist. Um, and it was much harder to get resources, information, opportunities for funding or applications. All of that stuff was really hard to find because it was never kind of put out there. But now I think that aspect's really good. Do I think there are better opportunities in film and television for young people from marginalised groups? No, I don't think that's changed, really. I think there are certain individuals who are making a, a concerted effort, most definitely. I think the awareness is there, which it wasn't, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It certainly wasn't there at all. But I think it's becoming harder, I think, the poverty line is, is I think, even harder now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I think that divide is bigger. You know, if you look at film schools, they cost an absolute fortune. It's just not a realistic option for young people that, you know, come from certain backgrounds. They're just not going to get in there. But on a positive note, smartphone technology has really, really, really changed everything. And that's kind of what I'm working on. Well, that is my <laughs> next question, because I'm like, give me some hope here, right? Um, I, you know, tell me about that, because you have been for many years working on the development of mobile video, and you've, you know, been shooting on a mobile phone for quite a long time, I believe. And you're, I think you're currently launching an online mobile filmmaking course uh, for beginners with Domestica. So shout out on that. And hopefully lots of people will jump on that because it sounds super exciting. And I love this because as an aside, I love film. I love image. Uh, you know, it's almost like the highest art, isn't it? You may or may not have words uh, or some form of poetry, whatever form that takes you have light, you have colour, you have movement, um, music, etc. And, you know, there's something incredibly magical and miraculous about film. And today, I guess, you are working on the democratisation of filmmaking with smartphone technology. Tell me about what you're doing personally in your work and what you're bringing into your work in the community with lots of young people in relation to smartphone uh, engagement. Well, prim film. primarily what I'm working on is the education side of it. So the technology is here. It is professional level technology that is here in our pockets. And I call it the cinema, the pocket cinema. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it, it's here, but, but most people still need to be taught that it's here, if that makes sense. And so that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment is to, Working with young people, it's about saying, but hang on a minute, you don't need an expensive DSLR camera. You do not need this or this or this or to hire that or that. There's a group of you so you can help each other. And what we need to look at is what can we shoot on that's still going to be really good quality that is actually going to tell the story that you want to tell. And they're still quite surprised every time you bring the mobile phone out. They're like, seriously, come on, that's that's not a real thing. But as soon as you show them the content, as soon as you show them what's happening globally around um, mobile phones and, and filmmaking and those two things coming together, young people are getting really excited because it is giving a voice. You know, the thing is, I'm still, I've still been working with young people in certain groups who don't know where their next dinner's coming from or their hot meal, but they have a phone in their pocket. So it's like, okay, so, you know, there is no excuse. You have something to create something, to be creative yourself. 
not rely on anyone else doing it, but actually create it yourself and get it out there yourself because we all have access. And I think that's where it's it's been a changer technology-wise. It's been an absolute changer for working with certain groups of young people. I've been doing a lot of um, research and I've been communicating with organizations in Africa because there are uh, countries there, obviously there are certain countries there struggling, but the one thing they've cottoned on to is the opportunity that many people there can, can have a voice because they can get hold of a mobile phone to film with. And that's really become exciting, you know, not just in Africa, but globally. Well, it's so interesting what you talk about in terms of voice, right? I think a lot of people who are marginalised wherever they are, whatever their story, um, they feel they haven't got a voice. Right. So in a way, this is giving them a platform to use their own unique, special voice, which is really, really beautiful. Tell me about um, the whole COVID period for you in your work. I love London Falls Silent, by the way. Oh, you oh, saw that? Right? Oh, my God, it's magical. And everyone should see it. It's really, really beautiful. How has COVID affected you and your work? How have you felt about everything you do during that time? For me, because I was working with mobile phones anyway, Apart from just do, doing regular contract jobs that everyone needs to do in order to pay their bills, of course, that there was a huge impact on that and, and a slight worry, thinking, okay, a bit of a rethink here. But I was already working with the technology, and I thought, well, you, I can work anywhere. I don't need to be based anywhere. I can still work doing what I do online. And I felt at that time it was an opportunity for me to just – sit down and just recalibrate and rethink what my missions were and a reset. But also I began to do a lot of video sharing content online because I wanted other people to realize, look, because my big concern during COVID was mental health, particularly as I understood, you know, I, I was getting a lot of questions from, from filmmakers panicking. You know, their jobs were reliant on being at the studio or um, shooting branded content or commercials. And they'd be like, Cass, you know, there's nothing going on. There's no work. What are we going to do? I don't, you know, I'm not, we're not allowed to do this. We can't do that because of the restrictions. And so I just started sharing. I started doing lots of free video content, sharing the technology and saying, look, you have this. Even if you're stuck at home, you can still do this. And, and it became a mission to help stimulate people's creativity and say look tomorrow's tomorrow and you can worry about money tomorrow and you can worry about money next week but right now right here you can do something that will take you somewhere else that will give you some creativity that will just engage you with something a challenge and also for you to realize that there may be other ways to try and create work opportunities by using your mobile phone the london full silent came around because i also wanted to help because I had more time on my hands. So I volunteered to deliver food to families and medicines um, to families. And so I had a license to drive around London to do those deliveries. Uh, and using, a, uh, using my mobile phone, I then decided to document the empty streets in between me driving from one place to another. And that's how London Full Silent came around. And then I contacted filmmakers all over the world that I knew of, and I said, we're all stuck, we're all restricted, but we can still document what's happening. This is the most extraordinary, scary thing that's happened to, to many of us that we can all share. So I managed to get five other filmmakers 
from China, Australia. I know US. it's wonderful what you've achieved, and it's, it's the world full silent. The world right? full silent, and it was just, yeah. and and it was it's incredible. And the filmmakers did it. You know, it's not there was no money involved, but the filmmakers wanted to do it because they said, "Hell yeah!" It gives me purpose. It gives me a, a challenge. It gives me something to try and concentrate on, uh, and also just a slightly different way to look at my own city. Totally, no, it's magical. Everyone should watch it. Um, so. Cassius, how do you feel about change today? You've gone through lots of change in your life, often through adversity, etc. How do you feel about change? In general, I think change is always a good thing. I think at different points in our lives, we sometimes need to stop, just stop and <laughs> just listen, just listen to what's going on around us. Um, we can get very driven by what we feel we have to do, you know, to just keep moving forwards. Change for me is, is it's, it's different as to whether change is inflicted or enforced on you or whether you make a, an actual choice to make change or to change certain ways that you do things. It could be in the most simplest of things. You know, actually, I need to listen to my partner because I'm, I'm too tunnel visioned or just silly changes, things that do make a difference for other people. Well, there are micro changes sometimes that can make the biggest shift for us, right? Right. That change in my life or the beginning of that was inflicted on me. It was not where my journey was going. So it was like someone just literally carved in, <laughs> pardon the pun, but carved right. in a, a crossroads in my life. And I had to make a choice whether I was going left, right or forwards. But I, I as I'm, I'm of age now, I, I've realised that I think we come naturally to certain points in different decades of our lives where change is good, change is healthy, it, it's good to maybe rethink or relook at how we're doing things. Um, yeah. What are you looking forward to? Or what are you excited about, you know, looking out to the horizon? I never know what's on the horizon. My work is very in the moment. The type of work that I do doesn't necessarily have a long-term plan. So things change very quickly. I think for me right now, I'm just very much enjoying being a dad to my two daughters I'm enjoying the fact that during COVID, my relationships with my children, it was amazing anyway, but it's like, it's really, really evolved. And I feel very connected to their worlds and what they're doing, very engaged, very involved with what they're doing. And in fact, I'm really grateful for that. Um, you know, COVID has been a very negative thing, but in a, in a slightly positive way, it's allowed me to sit back and settle and and listen to my family and and not be so you know concerned about you know how i'm going to support the next group of young people that are in trouble whatever it's actually my family <laughs> um future projects uh, i don't know i'm planning to my main mission is africa at the moment i want to i'm in conversation with an organization in kinshasa in the republic of congo because I want to evolve mobile filmmaking in African countries. Um, I want the opportunities to be there for them. And there's, uh, so for example, in, in Republic of Congo, there are 50, 50 million people there, but there's, and there's universities, of course, and education, but there's no film training. But many people have a mobile phone or access to a mobile phone. So to me, I, my mission over the next few years is to be able to go to 
um, countries that are struggling um, with aspects of education and to build an infrastructure of learning around mobile filmmaking so that the next generations can really pick it up easy and um, can actually continue creating stories, content, documentaries, whatever it is that's important to them. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm being a bit egotistical there, but it would be amazing to be able to create that legacy of having a, a, a training program that's free for anyone that wants to learn how to shoot a film but using a mobile phone which then opens up the door for many poorer countries on that note cassius um thank you for today thank you for sharing your story with me and many hopefully um i think that is a fantastic goal i think um it's very entrepreneurial of you because you know entrepreneurs are all about the scale up and it's about getting the model right, right and replicating it. So I'm excited about that. I'm sure there will be many people out there that you don't know today who will be supporters and be on that journey with you sooner than you know. And uh, I wish you every success with that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Speaking to Cassius today has reminded me how powerfully we can take traumatic incidents in our lives and use them to discover more about ourselves. If we are open, it can really change the course of our own lives. Two kids stabbed me and changed completely the course of my life, said Cassius. He was petrified, he thought he'd lost everything, and that his career was over. But then something changed. Over time, he realised that whilst he was a victim of that particular crime, they were victims too. This realisation allowed Cassius to explore the world of violent gang and drug-related crime. Instead of turning away, he sought to understand this better. And it's his work around social media, and especially smartphones, that was really refreshing to hear about. He does believe that social media has a good side and has allowed young people from marginalised areas to connect, research and be exposed to another world. Information is much more readily available and creates opportunities and possibilities in a way that just didn't exist before. In this way, Cassius's vision for the democratisation of smartphone technology as a sign of hope for our times was really eye-opening. It's been an absolute game-changer for working with certain groups of young people and really allowed him to keep working and communicating through COVID. I urge you to watch his London Falls silent film, an incredible example of someone with a true vision of what's possible if we open our minds. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Double Espresso with D. Do connect with me on Instagram at D Double Espresso. I love hearing your feedback and what has resonated with you. And don't forget to join me next week for another amazing guest interview. Until then, au revoir.